Blessed are you, Adonai our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of your Torah. Please, Adonai our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Yisrael. Amen, amen, amen. So let's read uh, chapter 26, ver beginning in verse 23, to the end of the, the chapter, and this is what it says. And he went up from there to Beersheba. And Adonai appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father Avraham. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bless you and increase your offspring because of Avraham, my servant. He built an altar there, invoked Adonai by name, and there he pitched his tent. There Isaac's servants dug a well. Avimelech went to him from Gerar with a group of his friends and Picol, general of his legions. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me? You hate me and drove me away from you. And they said, We've, we have indeed seen that Adonai has been with you. So we said, let the oath between ourselves now be between us and you, and let us make a covenant with you. If you do evil with us, just as we've not molested you, and just as we've done with you only, good, and sent you away in Shalom, now you, O blessed of Adonai. He made them a feast, and they ate and drank. They awoke early the next morning, and... And swore to one another. Then Isaac saw them off, and they departed from him in Shalom. And it was on that very day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that had dug, they had dug, and they said to him, We have found water. And he named it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba until this very day. When Esau was forty years old, he took as a wife Judith, daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Basemeth, daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they were a source of spiritual rebellion to Isaac and to Rebekah. So <clears throat> this is a very interesting passage that we're going to dive right into. I want to say off the bat that Hashem has done it again. You know, I... Um, when I was putting together this journey through Genesis, um, I would like to say that uh, Hashem spoke to me in a night vision, and uh, I saw uh, a scripture like a burning fire come down from heaven and divide itself before me uh, and create the week-to-week -week readings. Um, that's, a, that's the official record. That's how it happened. That's how it went down. But just between us in the house here, not going to tell anybody else, between us, what I did was, was I just went through and I calculated all the verses in Genesis and I divided them up and mixed all the chapters. And then uh, it just so happened that when that happened that it just fell so that each book of Torah had just the right number of, of uh, parashot to match the verses about, about the three patriarchs and, jo and, and uh, Yosef so that it kind of worked out. Now, I planned all that because I saw the fire come down from Shemayim, and that was totally part of what God had revealed to me. But in reality, it just kind of happened that way. Yeah. 
And so I'm looking at these verses, and here we are talking about Tazria Metzora, about some kind of spiritual skin disease. And this is what it says in Mayam Loez about Abimelech coming to Isaac. So Abimelech traveled from Gerar to Isaac along with a group of friends and his general Picol. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to me? You hate me and drove me away from you. When Abimelech exiled Isaac, it says in Mayam Loez, his land was punished in two ways. First his skin became covered with a severe infection. <laughs> yeah. Just as did Job's. The Torah therefore says Abimelech traveled from Gerar. Since it is known that he was a king of Gerar, this appears redundant. However, it can be translated, Abimelech traveled because of Gerar, where Gerar is a Hebrew word for scratching. The scratching and itching from these infections drove him to travel to Isaac. He came to him then that, that he had regretted having exiled him. <laughs> so here we are in Parashat Tezria Mezzora, and the reading for uh, the, today, for this week, from uh, the book of Genesis has to do, right off the bat, with Abimelech going to Isaac and basically repenting to Isaac for having exiled him. And the motivation, one of the motivations for him to do that was that he had broken out in some kind of strange skin disease. Now, when that fire fell from heaven, I put all this plan together. I knew that already, but in reality, I, I just figured this out this week. And uh, you know, God is good. You know, Hashem has a way. Hashem has a way of putting his little signature on things from time to time and let you know he's still there. He's still in charge. He's still directing everything. Now, it's interesting to me that, uh, you know, Abimelech, Isaac shows up and everything is, is a blessing. And Abimelech is so short-sighted that he thinks the blessing is something that he did. And so he exiles the Akedah. He gets rid of the, the image of the father that was laid down on the altar for the forgiveness of our sins. See, a lot of times we, are, we don't have anything and then the Mashiach comes into our life, and we're blessed, and now we have a big library, and we have all these sources, and we have all we know in Hebrew now, and we're reading from a scroll, and we have all this kind of stuff and amazing things. We're wrapping the feeling, and we think, man, I'm so blessed. This is so awesome. All this, uh, you know what? Akidah, go away. I don't need you anymore. And what happened was it all dried up, and skin disease broke out, and we realized, wait a minute. You know what? I just realized something. The reason I know what I know is because of the image of the Father that was offered up for the goodness of my sins on the altar. But too often people exile Yeshua, I mean Isaac, I mean the son of promise. And that's what happened to Abimelech. Now there was a second thing that happened. And the second thing that happened was that a band of rebels surrounded the palace and, and started to scream and did not allow the king to sleep. Now what's going on right now? Haver was saying this morning that he was a little trouble getting through his uh, community, his, his little town, uh, to get here this morning because there's people uh, protesting all of this COVID-19 uh, uh, stuff where businesses are shut down and things like that. Um, and so people are protesting. People are gathering around the king's palace and screaming and saying, hey, you need to open this, open this up. Right? 
I'm all, I'm all for being safe and all those kind of things, you know. Uh, well, I don't want to get into the politics of it all. Let me refrain from that because I don't want to start talking about statistics and stuff like that because then people just say, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, point, point zero, 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 five percent. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. <clears throat> um, but anyway, it goes on to say here, interesting insight, ain't old Milvado. There is nothing but a shem. That's something we have to understand in our life. There is nothing but a shem. We will all live a much more um, peaceful existence if we can make that a mantra in our mind. Ain old Milvado. There's nothing but a shim. Everything, as long as we're following a shim's will for our life to the very best of our ability, we're doing everything we can to, uh, to make sure that we're, uh, we're checking ourselves, that we're uh, getting into his word. As long as we're doing that, Hashem will take care of us and he will give us our heart's desire. We don't have to make anything happen. So this includes our job, our relationships, uh, that car you want, that house you want, those kind of things. The best thing that we can do is just to get into God's will and follow His will to the utmost, our very utmost. And all those things that we need and all those things that we desire, Hashem will make happen for us. Now, there's a lot of things we could say that we don't necessarily need. Like, I um, can't believe I'm going to say this, but i got to be honest. You know, we don't need more than... Uh, one gun. Give me a second. Uh, but God is so gracious to us, he gives us more than one. And two, and three, and four. And uh, he, we don't need, think about it, we don't really need, we don't really need more than one car maybe. Or we don't need, we, we don't need to have a car with leather interior and and uh, automatic windows and all those kind of things and Bluetooth. We don't need that, right? I mean, we to get to work, we don't need Bluetooth, right? But God gives us far more than what we need. If we really, what we we don't really need steak, you know. We 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 had we had uh, beef for dinner last night. That's what was for dinner. Ah, uh, but we didn't need that. We could have had just rice and beans, right? We don't to keep us alive. But God gives us more than what we need. That's the point. His grace is abound and very abundant. But it says in those times, people were very intelligent. And when trouble struck, they would examine their deeds, seeking the wrongdoing that was the cause of their grief. So it says this teaches us a, an important lesson. If one cannot sleep at night, he should realize that it's not without reason. It's a sign from on high. This is written in Mam Lewis. Then he must carefully review his deeds and rectify them. It's interesting. God is trying to teach us something. The point being is he's trying to show us when we're going through trials and tribulations or things aren't quite right, he's trying to show us what's going on with us. What do we need to do? And that's what Avimelech did. He recognized that something was amiss and... He's got these, this weird skin disease. He's got people surrounding his palace and these rebels that are screaming at him. He can't, he can't sleep at night. And so he realizes that his problem was that he banished the Akedah. He got rid of the Mashiach. And a lot of times we, in order to solve a problem, we banish God. 
right? We need to make more money, so we limit our Torah study and we increase our effort at work. Doesn't mean you shouldn't work. Obviously, you have to work. You won't. You will not eat if you don't work. We're seeing how, by the way, everybody enjoying socialism. How many of you like socialism? You're you're watching socialism in action right now. You know, I went to the I went to the store. I went to three different stores yesterday. Yesterday, trying to find flour. Welcome to socialism. Wasn't any. Can you say Venezuela? Isn't this beautiful? This isn't this great? You go there and there's no flour on the on the shelf. Why? Because it's socialism. You want socialism? That's socialism is no flour on the shelf. Or yeast. Socialism is no toilet paper on the shelf. No, thank you. I like going and having 50 different kinds of flour and have no idea which one to buy. I, I like that. I want that. That's America. So going to Rabbi Monk here, switching to Monk, everything just running amok. Hashem appeared to him at night. Joseph said to Potiphar's wife, when the Holy and blessed be he revealed himself to my ancestors, it was usually at night. We see that this happened to Abraham, and it happened to Isaac, and it happened to Jacob that way. So one of his arguments to Potiphar's wife, who wanted him to uh, commit adultery with her, because she was obviously married, so therefore that's adultery, that he said, look, if I do this, one of the problems is I will be impure because of the act in more ways than one. And therefore, when God wants to reveal himself to me, I won't be in a state of purity in order to talk to him. That was one of his arguments, but it teaches us a lesson that a lot of times God speaks to us at nighttime. That's just a, a, a modus operandi, so to speak, of Hashem and how he speaks. It also says in this verse, because of Abraham my servant, Rabbi Eliezer said, all the kindness accorded to Isaac was due to the merit of his father. Now let's just recap before I read this next part so we can kind of get our minds around a reality here. Remember that Isaac, we can't say this too often, Isaac was a spitting image of his father Abraham. Exact replica, if you will. Looked just like him. God did this so that the naysayers would not say that Isaac was actually Abimelech's son. Okay? Now, Abraham, they say, was a direct, a spitting image, as we say, of, of uh, Adam. And Adam was a spitting image of Hashem, looked just like him. So now you have Hashem made Adam to look like him, and now Abraham looks just like Adam. Now Isaac just looks like, just looks just like Abraham, who looks like Adam, who looks like Hashem. So now when Isaac is laid down on the altar, we literally have the image of the Father. In this case, we literally have the image of God. I mean, if you really follow it down, we have the image of God that is laid down on the altar, offered up by the Father, who, by the way, is also the image of God, so that when the Father is looking at the Son, they're looking at each other like, like looking in a mirror. You could take it a step further, and you could say that when, when the son spoke to the father about what was going on, and he spoke to the father and said, where is the lamb? And he says, 
God will provide a lamb, my son, that's you. And Isaac was like, well, you know, that's fine with me. And he said, you know, Midrash brings out, he said, don't tie my hands too tight, or excuse me, tie them real tight to make sure that I don't flinch and cause a, the offering to be defiled. When they're having that conversation, you could make the argument that the image of God was talking to the image of God. That the image of God was praying to the image of God. Thy will, not, not, not my will, but your will be done. Okay, so, so this is what's going on. So the image of the Father, the image of God, offered on the altar for the purpose of making atonement for Israel. This is why, as I've said multiple times, when we come to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we're actually asking God to remember that offering. Everything else we've done all year long, we've worked so hard, we've done everything we could, as I said earlier, to follow God's will, and God is working His plan in our life. But at the end of the day, when we're standing around and we've got our big bag of mitzvahs, yeah, right. You just got your big bag. You thought it was a big bag, but it's actually a not. It was actually an evening purse. When you see what you actually need, you're like, <laughs> ain't worth it. We're cast out. We will. We'll end up taking those crowns, and we'll end up casting those crowns at the feet of the Messiah, because at the end of the day, however many crowns we have, whether it's one or half of one or a piece of one, we're going to end up throwing it at his feet because it all comes back to him anyway. Now, this is the pattern, by the way. So when people say, well, don't you believe in Yeshua as your atonement? Yes, I do. And the Jews believed in the offering as the atonement also. But it doesn't negate doing the mitzvahs. Just because we're, it all comes back to the son that was offered doesn't give us permission to just ignore everything we're supposed to do. But it goes on to say his own merits, this is talking about Isaac, Isaac's own merits will be recompensed only in the distant future. This opinion is borne out by a passage in the Talmud, now listen to this, which describes Isaac as the true redeemer of the Jewish people on the day of final judgment. Now, wait a minute. Now, that's very important because of all that I just said, at the end of the day, the true redeemer of Judaism, the true Mashiach of Judaism, is the son offered on the altar by the Father for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the true redeemer in, in, in Judaism. Now, it's, it mentioned Shabbat 89b, so let's read Shabbat 89b, shall we? It says, Rabbi Shimon bar Nachmani said in the name of Rabbi Yonatan, what is the meaning of that which is written, for you are our father, because Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You, Hashem, are our father. You, Hashem, are our redeemer. From the time immortal is your name. So this is making it clear you've got to put all the pieces of the pie together or puzzle, I should say, that this is making it clear that Hashem is ultimately the Redeemer. But wait, Isaac is the true Redeemer. When Isaac is offered on the altar. So is Isaac the true Redeemer offered on the altar, or is Hashem the true Redeemer? And the answer is yes. Why? Because the two images are looking at each other. So it says, At a future time, the whole and blessed be he will say to Abraham, 
Your children have sinned against me. And Abraham will reply before him, Master of the universe, let them be obliterated, obliterated for the sanctity of your name. Oh, Abraham's hard. Now it says, unsatisfied with this reply, Hashem will say to himself, I will speak rather to Jacob since he experienced pain in raising his children. Jacob will have a little more empathy because Jacob's been through this with his kids. He'll, uh, he'll, he'll empathize. Perhaps he'll ask me to have mercy upon them. So Hashem will say to Jacob, your children have sinned against me. Jacob will reply before him, master of the universe, let them be obliterated for the sanctity of your name. Now Hashem will say, there is neither reason among the elders nor counsel among the youth. So Hashem will say to Isaac, Isaac, your children have sinned against me. Isaac will say before him, master of the universe, my children? Aren't they your children? Now see, this is getting good because I want you to keep in mind who God is finally finding grace and mercy, not with Abraham, not with Jacob. He's finding grace and mercy with the one who laid down or was willing to lay down his life in order to bring sanctity to God's name. And it says, he says, Isaac says, they're my children? I thought they were your children. When they preceded the statement we will do to the statement we will hear before you, you called them my son. You called them my firstborn. This is still Isaac talking. Now you tell me that they're my children and not your children? Furthermore, how much after all could they have sinned? How many are a man's years? Seventy years? Take away the first 20, since you don't punish a person for those first 20 years. Then you have 50 years left. Now take away 25, which are the nights. And there you have 25 left. Now take away 12 and a half, which are spent praying, eating, or using the bathroom. Now you only have 12 and a half years of potential sin left. If you will shoulder them all, fine. And if not, then half you should be on you and let the other half be on me. And if you wish to say that all of them should be on me, Behold, I am ready to sacrifice myself before you. Now, it says, after hearing Isaac's defense of them, that that is the Jewish people, the Jewish people will open their mouth and say, For you, Isaac, for you, Akedah, are our true father. Isaac will tell them, there's no one good except God. Why do you call me good? Oh, now it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. But hold on. Hold on. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. But this is what it says. Listen to this. Listen to this. I'm reading to you from Shabbat 89b because that's what, how we roll right here. It says, for you, Isaac, are our true father. And Isaac will say, Amar lechem Yitzhak. He will say to them, Instead of lauding me, laud the Holy One, blessed be He. Who is your true father? And Isaac will indicate that the Holy One, blessed be He, before their eyes. Immediately they will lift up their eyes from, to above and say, You, Hashem, are our father, our redeemer, from time immemorial is your name. 
Wow. Why? Why is he going to say that? Because Isaac is an image of, of the Father. This is, why, this is why Yeshua, even though he was our divine redeemer, kept pointing us to Hashem. Don't look at me. Look at him. Don't look at me. Look at him. And so it says here, in the end, Isaac will be our true redeemer. This, of course, is talking about the son of promise. Now notice what it says next in verse 25. He built an altar there. Isaac immediately builds an altar, it says, at Beersheba, and he proclaims the God, name of God. Now look what happened here. Because I, I, when I read this, I immediately thought of us. Because we built an altar. It's called the Shul. It says he built an altar at Beersheba and proclaimed the name of God there. And immediately it says... It says he does not wait to examine the soil or even to see if there's water that, to be found there. He, he first thing he does is just build an altar. So it says, it says here that he built an altar, and then the next thing he did was he dug a well. And after he dug a well, so after he built the altar, the next thing that happens is Abimelech comes to him. And says, hey, I want to be friends. So he built an altar and dug a well, like a mikvah. And then the blessing was that the people came and the situation, after he built the altar and dug the well, the mikvah, then the situation was transformed from one of exile into one of the nations coming to him now and wanting to be blessed by him. And it's interesting that after he had this little meeting with Avimelech and the nations want to be blessed by him, that after that happened, then the people came to him and said, by the way, that well we dug, it's got living water in it now. <laughs> we were, see, he wasn't sure it's going to have living water or not. He just dug a well. And now it has living water. Isn't that amazing? Now, there's a very interesting insight here to... Um, from Mamal West, also in the Midrash Rabbah. I'm going to read it to you from Mamal West. And it's about this incident of Abimelech coming to Isaac and saying to him, Hey, we've treated you well until now. And the sages point out that that's really a ridiculous statement. What do you mean you treated me well until now? I showed up at your place, everything was blessed, and you told me to get out. And now you show up here, and you're like, hey, we treated you really nice back there. And it doesn't seem right. Like, you didn't treat me nice. You told me to get out. Well, the reality is, is that they did, in fact, treat him nice. Because the Talmud, excuse me, the Midrash brings down that they normally just kill people. And so the message was, because we allowed you to escape with your life, that that's their idea of treating you nice. Now, truth be told, there's another insight that says that, in fact, that was, in fact, treating him nice. But really, Abimelech was scared of Isaac because he remembered his father who defeated the kings that were supposed to be in, un, not able to be defeated. And he said, we probably could kill Isaac, but I remember his daddy... Those, remember those kings? They were like, you know, invincible. And he destroyed them like a few guys, and, you know, in between beers. And uh, 
probably Isaac would just wipe us all out, most likely. So let's just leave him alone, okay, and uh, we won't kill him, uh, and that kind of stuff. So the Talmud relates this story in the mouth of a lion, or in the lion's mouth. It says this, the Talmud relates in the time of Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanina, around 130 CE, the Roman Emperor Hadrian granted permission to rebuild the Holy Temple, which had been destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 AD. The emperor's desire was so strong that he sent messengers to all the Jewish communities in his kingdom, asking the Jews to assemble in Jerusalem as soon as possible. For this purpose, he sent a huge sum of money so that from Akko, been there, to Antioch, there were tables covered with heaps of silver and gold coins to pay the Jews' traveling expenses. The Jews began assembling in Jerusalem, but it was decreed on high that the temple not be built so rapidly a third time. The emperor changed his mind. His advisors told him, if you let the Jews rebuild the temple, you will suffer great losses. They will use the temple as the focal point of their independent movement and will soon refuse to pay tribute to the Roman taxes. The emperor found their arguments convincing, but he said, how can I change my mind when I've already given a royal proclamation granting them permission to build it? So they advised him to send the following message to the Jews. I was very happy to grant you permission to build your sacred temple, but... Because I acted with great kindness towards you, do something uh, no previous king has done, or by, by allowing you to do something no previous king has done, spending much money for this purpose, I wish to be the owner of the building and have it named after me. So as not to anger you, I give you one of the three following choices. Either build a temple in another location, even better than its original site, or make it either five cubits high or five cubits lower than the previous temple. The choice is your, yours. I will agree to whichever you choose to take. With this, the advisor said, you can easily avoid fulfilling their promise. The Jews themselves will never to agree to such terms. As it is known, it is forbidden for them to change even the slightest detail in their temple. Now, remember, the temple and the Torah are the same thing. In fact, the Torah said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. We're not allowed to change the Torah at all. Not even five cubits. You say, well, I want to change it because I don't like to wear in seat seat. I want to change it, I think, to, to feel it. I want to change it because I want to eat something else. You know, you can't change it five cubits. You know why you can't change it five cubits? Because you can't change creation five cubits. Stand out there on the beach tell that hurricane to stop. Next time it rains, stand outside and tell it stop raining. Next time that tornado is coming, stand out there and, and, and cause it to shift three feet. Can't do any of it. You can't change creation, and Torah is creation. I've got one better for you. Cause one without using chemicals, cause one gray hair on your head to turn black again. Right. It says, upon hearing this news, the Jews began, began to weep and mourn, and many leaders agreed to rebuild the temple properly, although it would mean going against the emperor's orders, and if necessary, openly rebelling against the emperor. The sages also met and sought a way to avert the certain tragedy that would result from such rebellion. If the emperor had changed his mind, it would be folly to attempt to go against him. Finally, the sages decided that Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanina should preach to the Jewish leaders. 
He was a great sage, an excellent speaker, who was able to convince people of the proper course of action. So speaking to the Jewish leadership, Rabbi Yehoshua made use of the following parable. He said, a lion once had a bone stuck in his throat. He made an announcement. Whoever removes the bone from my throat will be aptly rewarded. A long-necked stork came along, placed its head inside the lion's throat, and removed the offending bone. Now when the bird asked for his reward, the lion said, You placed your head in my mouth and took it out in one piece. What greater reward do you want? The lion said to the stork, all your life you'll be able to boast about this. I stuck my head in a lion's mouth. Ain't no stork out there going to be able to say I did that. So the rabbi said, the same is true of us. We must also rejoice because we were able to remove our head from the lion's mouth. We have been defeated by the Romans, but still we have survived. Let the temple be rebuilt when, rebuilt when God wills it to be rebuilt. Let the temple be rebuilt when God wills it to rebuilt, be rebuilt. The best thing to do, ladies and gentlemen, is to allow God to work his timing. That's not always easy because we like to very often push the rock down the road, but <clears throat> it doesn't really work out for us. I want to point something else out that... Aleph Memtov assaulted me with this morning because um, I overheard him talking about uh, this parable, which is in the Midrash Shabbat, something that says in the Midrash Shabbat that it did not say or mention in Ma'am Loez was that the, the Jewish people gathered in Lower Galilee when they were having this discussion about rebuilding the temple. It says, at that time, the Jewish public was amassed in the valley of Beit Rimon, which means literally the house of the pomegranate, which is actually located in the lower gallery, which we th I think that's fascinating on a spiritual level. Then when it comes time to wanting to rebuild the temple, that it's going to be that that desire is going to be by a, a bunch of Jews who happen to come from lower Galilee. And by the way, those little fancy little things we have on top of the Torah scroll, those are called renomim, which means pomegranates, which means that we have on top of our Torah scroll we have the house of pomegranates, which comes, which actually means lower Galilee. So actually we have lower Galilee in our ark right now, which is on top of greater Galilee, Galilee, which is the Mashiach, which is the Torah. Now what's the meaning of the well? A couple more insights here for us. It says here, uh, Rabbi Monk brings down, the well of living water, on the material plane is equivalent to the source of inspiration on the spiritual plane. We just discovered, Hashem just caused us to come to the realization that our mikvah is now, I just still can't get over this, is a mikvah that is being filled up with natural spring water because we inadvertently dug into a natural spring. It's Mayim Hayim. Now, rainwater is living water too and perfectly kosher, but the highest level of the mikvah is Mayim Hayim, living water, which comes from a natural spring, which is equivalent to saying that our mikvah is being filled up with 
a source of inspiration. It says the patriarchs are determined to make it clear that their partners, right from the, from the moment the friendship treaty was signed, that they'll never share their cultural life. They made a treaty with Abimelech, but the well represents the fact that our inspiration doesn't come from you, Abimelech. Our inspiration comes from that source of living water. And we draw, it says here, we draw spiritual nourishment only from our sources and our wellsprings, not from them. Not from them. So at the conclusion of our chapter, it takes a turn and starts talking about Esau and his marriage, his marriages. And so this is going to be my final insight. It's interesting because we go from this Isaac being banished, now there's been a treaty, we have a well, we have all this discussion, and now we have Esau. It says Esau was 40 years old, and Rashi points out the hypocrisy of Esau, who's compared to a pig that lies down proudly and shows off his hooves as if to say I'm a kosher animal. You know, it's one thing to be wicked, one thing to be a wicked person, and openly wicked. That's bad, but it, at least the person is up front. What's really bad is when you have somebody who's pretending to be righteous by showing his little split hooves, but in reality, they're not righteous at all. It reminds me of a little bit of a joke, if you'll uh, allow for a little bit of levity to that point. I've said this joke before, but this is a good place for it. The rabbi's walking down a city, city street, and he sees one of his congregation members walking into a non-kosher restaurant. He's astonished. So the rabbi goes over to the window, and he sees the man be seated in the restaurant. The man picks up a menu, and he looks at it for a little bit, and then he seemingly places an order with a waitress. The rabbi is dumbfounded because he knows there's nothing kosher on that menu at all. The waitress brings the food after a short while and says it before him, and he sees the Jewish guy start to eat. He's just beside himself. And so the Jewish man leaves the restaurant, and as he's leaving, the rabbi stops and says, Hey, 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 what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? I, what are you going in this place? He said, What are you talking about? He said, The Jewish guy said, Did you see me go in? He said, Yes. Did you see me sit down? Yes. Did you see me order? Yes. Did you see me eat? The rabbi says, I saw everything. I watched the whole thing. And he said, so is all of the rabbinic uh, observation. What are you complaining about? <laughs> so listen, it's one thing to be openly wicked, but it's something else to pretend to be righteous, but in fact you're just playing games. You're not really righteous. That's what Esau was. He says here at 40 years old, he decides to get married. Why? Because he's trying to impress his father. Daddy got married at 40, and I'll get married at 40. This is indicate that I'm righteous. But it says here, but the reality is for the last 25 years, Esau had been taking the wives from other husbands and committing adultery with them. Not single women. Married women, which makes it adultery. 
And now he's going to go and get a wife at 40 and pretend that he's really into the covenant of marriage and so on. So it says, now at 40, he hypocritically, hypocritically exclaims, my father took a wife at 40, and so shall I. It says here also, he took a wife. Ma'am, I mean, excuse me, uh, Rabbi Monk says, after the years of famine had ended, Isaac sent his younger son Jacob to the school of Shem to study the divine law. There Jacob remained for 32 years studying the Torah. As for Esau, he refused to go and study and remained in his father's house. His only occupation was hunting, aside from when he pursued peaceful passerbyers in order to rob them and take all of their stuff while he was out hunting. So he had a little side business. Esau's side business was highway robbery. Yes, robbery, robbery. Haver said. Now the Midrash Rabbah talking about this whole discussion about Judith, um, about his wives and so on, there's an interesting discussion about the fact that God arranges all marriages, including wicked ones. That all marriages, all unions, ultimately come from Hashem, even bad ones. And it's a little bit of a long insight, but I want to read it to you because I think it's interesting and it uh, will maybe provide some clarity for people out there. So it said, this is an insight from Midrash Rabbah. It says, the verses in Psalms are in, interpreted by our Midrash in one of the sources for referring to a person's mate at his or her, as his or her bashert. That is, the predestined one. For it is predetermined by God himself. Another source is the statement of the Gemara in Sota 2a and Sanhedrin 22a. Forty days before the formation of an embryo, at the time of conception, issues forth a proclamation, the daughter of so-and-so is destined for so-and-so. So the moment of, con the moment of conception, at the moment of conception, God decrees from heaven who this child shall be married to. So it says it seems clear from the aforementioned Gemara that God actually predetermines a person's destined mate at the time he is conceived. There is extensive discussion, it says, among the commentators here, but not all of that's going to be brought out here. Nevertheless, we present a sampling of some of these. The Gemara in several places notes, it says that there are, there are exceptions to the rule that one's mate is predetermined. In one instance, in Sota 2a and Sanhedrin 22a, the Gemara distinguishes between a first union and a second union. So if somebody is married first, then something happens, and there is a, uh, uh, most likely a, a, a death of a spouse, or perhaps a divorce, but usually in this case talking about a death, then there is a second union that happens. So it says the Gemara makes a distinction between those two, and this is what it says. Whereas one's first union is predetermined at the time of conception, his or her second union is in accordance with his deeds. Therefore, a modest woman is paired with a righteous man, and an immodest woman is paired with a wicked man. Now, the commentators debate the meaning of first union and second union, and some explain that a first union refers to a marriage of either spouse, 
such a marriage is predetermined. A second union refers to where the man or woman had previously been married, and their marriage is, is not predetermined, but rather based on deeds. So it goes on to say, another approach is that at the time of conception, an ideal mate is destined for each male. This is what is referred to as his first union. When he attains marriageable age, heaven judges him. If he is deserving, he will be given the ideal mate. If not, she will be given to someone more deserving, and she will be given to the other man's second union. Which is fascinating. So you have a, a, a boy who's conceived, and heaven says, this girl is for him. He grows up, turns out he's, he doesn't really live up to the standard. And so God says, oh, that girl is actually now for the second union of that guy because of his deeds. So it says, in accordance with this conduct, it says, uh, in, or excuse me, is given to the second union in accordance with that man's deeds, with his conduct. Similarly, a woman will merit her first union only if she is deserving. According to this approach, it stands the reason that many people do not marry their ideal mate. So Rambam brings down, also, and he also points out that the, deter the determination at the time of conception is by no means absolute. If it were, a person would not be punished for marrying a woman who was forbidden to him. Rather, Rambam states that the Gemara in Sota refers to the ways of reward and punishment. If the man and woman... Each perform a mitzvah for which it is fitting that they should receive the reward of a suitable spouse. God brings them together. On the other hand, if it is fitting that they be punished for their transgression by suffering, that they be punished for transgression, they do so by suffering in a contentious marriage. God arranges such a marriage. Rambam writes that this is the intent of the Midrash, which says that God takes one mamzer at one end of the world and unites it with a mamzer at the other, a mamzeret at the other end of the world and joins them with each other in marriage, which is what he did with Esau's marriage to Judith. It says, thus Esau's marriage to an unworthy wise was at the same time a result of his own free will and predestination. The stifler Goen was likewise quoting as saying that the predetermined of one's spouse is not absolute. He notes that it was clear to him that through observation that the heavenly voice announces only that it will be a proper for so-and-so to marry the daughter of so-and-so. Should he be worthy, God will cause the forces of providence to arrange for him to merit this match. However, one still has the free will to act improperly, which will cause him to forfeit such a marriage that had been ordained by heaven originally. All that to say... That as I said early on, ain't old Milvado, everything is from Hashem, yes. But like so many things in Torah, there is a balance to everything. We trust in the, the Lamb of God that was laid down for the forgiveness of our sins. We put our whole faith in that atonement sacrifice. At the end of the day, everything we have, all of our hope is in Him. And yet, we have to continue following God's will in our life. We have to be faithful to the covenant. We know that God has preordained for us a spouse and so on. And we can say, ain't old milvado, it'll all work out according to God's plan. Yes, if we are living a righteous life. If we are following God's will for our life, God will provide for us. 
the, the message in all of that was balance and understanding that we've got to follow God's will and he'll take everything else, care of everything as long as we're following God's will. So we say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. 